The Diplomacy Dojo is a weekly discussion led by your board brother about diplomacy tactics and strategies. Let's listen in on what our players are discussing this week. Okay, uh, Paul's here today at the Diplomacy Dojo. How's it going, Paul? Um, it's going all right. The first question I I had is just to talk about signaling and diplomacy. Like, are there any do's or don'ts that you have in mind when sort of figuring out how to do it and like the best way, best way of getting the other people on, on the board aware of the atten- intentions you want them to be? And, and for like coordination and gunboat, can you do it in a way which doesn't, which doesn't cause you to say waste the entire season or, you know. So in, is this a question about gunboat diplomacy only or diplomacy in general? I mean, you can, you can talk about diplomacy in general, but I guess people use their press if they want to make signals there. You, I guess it's the focus is less on on the moves being your signals. Okay. I, I understand that we're talking about gunboat then. What else? Maybe sort of ideas about like when you're, let's say when you're spectating a game, like what are you looking for? I mean, what what are you trying to understand when you sort of, if you were to play through, say, a high-level diplomacy game, which which you aren't playing in? How to spectate a match. That's fascinating. Okay. So let's begin by talking about signaling in gunboat diplomacy. That's a topic that I'm very interested in, and I think I I know as much about it as anybody can know. To put it another way, I've played so much gunboat diplomacy and at, at, at a high level that if there's a form of signaling that I'm not aware of, then I'm not really sure it counts as signaling. Because it means that uh, an experienced player wouldn't understand what you were trying to communicate. So the app you're playing with matters. Yes, because you either you either are allowed to signal with illegal moves or or that's not possible. That's right. So let's first talk about more confined. I'm more familiar with web diplomacy and uh, the other ones that are programmed similarly that do not allow you to enter totally illegal moves, moves that would never ever work. So when I'm playing a gunboat game and I'm thinking about how to send signals, the first is that there are regular moves you could make that send signals. For example, uh, attacking a player signals that you want to attack them. That's not to be uh, underestimated, the value of signaling what you are doing by doing it. For example, let's say that you are Turkey and you open by moving your army in Smyrna to Armenia. That is how you begin an attack on Russia in 1901. But you've also communicated to the other players, particularly Italy and Austria, that you are going to attack Russia. And they may decide not to attack you. That's usually the thinking, right? Okay, if I I begin by attacking Russia, maybe uh, those players uh, will decide to do something else other than attack me. Maybe Italy won't open with Lepanto or something. Now, they might actually do it. But the point is that every time you take an action, it does signal your intentions because you have taken those actions. That doesn't, doesn't cost you anything extra. It doesn't cost you anything tactically. The, the next least costly form of signaling is to issue orders with pieces, uh, issue orders that you think will fail or not matter with pieces that aren't doing anything anyway. 
A great example of this is in 1901, in spring, Germany often moves Kiel to Denmark, and in autumn, maybe bounces Russia out of Sweden or maybe doesn't. There is a subtle difference in whether Germany simply allows Russia to enter Sweden or whether Germany issues support Russia's fleet to Sweden. The outcome's the same. There's no way Russia's move to Sweden can be stopped by another player. The allowing Russia into Sweden suggests I'm not particularly friendly towards Russia, and supporting Russia into Sweden says, hey, I, I want to work with Russia. I'm, I'm going to help Russia in the future. The Germany could have issued either order, so why issue the support order unless you want to signal some kind of extra, extra level of friendship towards Russia? Other examples include support hold orders that don't matter. Uh, you can issue a support hold order on a neighbor's piece. It won't make any difference whether you issued hold or support hold, but when you see, okay, the other guy sees, I see you, you did a support hold that, that, that in, in signals some kind of friendship. So in 1901, Italy could just hold with Venice, which indicates a quite icy view towards Austria, or could issue Venice support hold to Trieste, which doesn't do anything different. The outcome is going to be the same. There's no way that the support hold is going to matter. But the latter version says, all right, yeah, I haven't moved Venice, but I would, I would like to be friendly to Austria. Now, of course, everyone can bear in mind that you can send signals that are misleading. It could, they could be false signals, uh, but you know, it's a signal nonetheless. My personal favorite version of the using a signal with a piece that's not doing anything is if you have an army that's just going to hold, but it has some convoy opportunities on the web diplomacy interface. This is actually maybe the best way to to communicate clearly because you could convoy that army using opponent's pieces. It will fail for sure, but it draws a line, could, could draw a line very far because you could chain together a lot of convoys. So this convoy will fail, but you could do something like draw a line from Norway to North Africa all the way across the map and send a very clear signal of something. Well, you want the players to move towards this direction or or back away from you or attack somebody, something like that. And then finally, there's the third kind of signaling, which is to to make a signal that foregoes doing something useful with the piece. And that could be something like, uh, I really wish I was, I was moving this piece around, but I want to communicate to another player that we are friends. So this could be something like something, this, some, this is not a move I would do, but this is an example. In spring 1901, France supports London to English Channel using Brest. That gives up using Brest as a move but shows uh, that you anticipated England move to English Channel and you're cool with that and you want to work with England, that sends a, such a loud signal like, England, be my ally, <laughs> is, what, is what that's trying to say. Because you thought England was going to move to English Channel and you didn't bounce it. In fact, you supported it. Uh, whether England accepts that offer of alliance, I don't know. Uh, something I actually have seen a few times in a game is Russia supporting Turkey to Black Sea in spring 1901 to say, uh, you know, I'm not going to attack you. Please don't attack me. Let's be friends. Juggernaut. Let's make it happen. That's something that'll happen. And it actually gives up a move. Russia could have bounced Turkey in Black Sea and gives Turkey a considerable tactical advantage by not making that move. But maybe it's worth it to send the signal. When I've played as Turkey, I've sometimes gone, hmm, the Russian player wants to be my ally that badly and understands this game well enough how to send the signal. Maybe I do want them as an ally. That seems pretty cool uh, that they did that. It works on me. It won't work on everybody. So those are the three kinds of signals. Before I go into further detail, uh, what do you think about these points? 
I think I can can at least see see where where this is coming from. I mean, for instance, I guess you can also like move troops away from a common border. I think that's probably also sending a signal, even though like let's say you have an Austria-Russia alliance and you want you would probably want to make sure that you know Galicia is under control, but you might move your army to Budapest just because it's you know you're showing that you're willing to keep keep an alliance with Russia and you trust them to not fill in the space. Maybe there's like a halfway point where you're trying to go, um, say like when a dog or a wolf rolls over, expose their belly to say like, you know, I'm not a threat. There are ways to do that as well. Yeah, like but maybe that's a better way of characterizing what you're talking about. Just moving everything away from another player, even if that's unnecessary uh, or makes you vulnerable, but you want to communicate to them, I'm not going to attack. And what about builds? I guess you can also make signals with your your builds, although maybe that also falls into the first category in your your opinion. Yes, but I think it's worth pointing out because I think in gunboat diplomacy, the builds communicate perhaps the most of any other normal move because in deciding where the pieces are built and what type of unit it is, the player has made a likely permanent choice on what their offensive capabilities are. For example, France in 1901 builds an army in Paris and a fleet in Marseille. Then that communicates pretty strongly. I'm not going to attack England. You know, France, France could have France could have built in Brest and didn't. Okay, that's a big communication. Or well, whether Russia builds a fleet or an army in Saint Petersburg in 1901 has immense implications for Russia, Russia's tactical capabilities on offense and defense, and is it's it's a probably a permanent decision. You're making that decision strategically, but it also communicates something. So I would say, yeah, it's in the first category. A, a great example of this might be uh, if Germany's building a fleet in 1901, Germany could build a fleet in Kiel or a fleet in Berlin. And where that fleet is built communicates quite a lot because a fleet in Kiel or Berlin can both move to Baltic Sea, uh, but a fleet in Kiel can also move to Holland or other anti-English things. So the, the fleet building Kiel is ambiguous. Whereas the fleet in Berlin is crystal clear, I'm going to attack Sweden. No other interpretation of that build. So if you make the fleet build, you should be thinking about what it will communicate to the other players because uh, you're sort of locked into what you're going to do. And some builds don't do this. Some builds are like sort of obvious or as a matter of course, uh, like Turkey almost invariably builds a fleet in Smyrna in gunboat diplomacy. Doesn't really say anything. It's just so common. It's hard to, to read much into it. Austria often builds two armies or all armies doesn't doesn't necessarily mean that much. I think that uh, as far as your do's and don'ts aspect of it, my threshold is to figure out which players are capable of interpreting these signals. Because if you're dealing with a player who does not seem capable of interpreting the signals, there's not much value in sending them those signals. So if a player is sending signals they are sending signals. Okay, this other player is issuing orders that only make sense as signals of the latter two kinds. They're, issue, they're using their extra moves to issue orders, or they're even sacrificing a piece's move to send signals. They're, they're, they're going out of their way to send signals. That implies that they would understand if you sent them signal, and you could send them signals right back. So if they're doing something like uh, the French player moves to Burgundy in 1901 and then supports Germany into Belgium, okay, 
regardless of which power I am, where I learned in 1901, the French player understands the idea of like, okay, I could support Germany to Belgium in order to convey that I want to be allies with Germany. That's, that's what that means. And, uh, and then I would anticipate that if, regardless of which power I am, that if I sent signals that I wanted France to understand, probably France would get the meaning of it. The next bit of advice I have is that I, I've played the gunboat games where afterwards the players tried to explain some signals that they were, that they were sending and they, um, nobody understood this. Because the players don't get to speak in gunboat diplomacy, to understand the language of how players are signaling means you need some experience with what players consider to be signals and how they interpret them. To put it another way, if you've made up this signal yourself and you've never had other people send you this signal that you're trying to send, you might be trying to speak in a private language that other people aren't going to get what you're trying to say. And uh, I think that does come up in gunboat diplomacy where, where players think they're sending a signal, but they could have appreciated that that signal was not going to be heard because it was just too unusual and the other players didn't understand what it means. Uh, so uh, based on that, if you want to signal in gunboat diplomacy, I say spend some time talking to players and ask them what their signals meant after the match and ask them if they understood what your signals meant after the match. And you might learn, oh, mm, you know, I, I said that I was trying to communicate this and other people didn't understand it. In a high-level gumbo diplomacy match, you can communicate some pretty subtle stuff. It is, it is possible to communicate things like, I'll vote draw if we eliminate this other player. It's possible. In order to communicate something that subtle, you need to be playing with players who are capable of understanding that. So in a low-level gunboat diplomacy game, maybe like a pickup game where you don't really know who's playing it, then I wouldn't count that much on communicating a lot with your signals. But in a high-level game, you can go pretty deep. Any any other thoughts come to mind? Something maybe something particular in your experiences? So I guess I guess one thing which wasn't discussed is also like choosing to disband a unit instead of retreating it or you know things things of that sort they can that can send a signal that you know i don't want you to worry about about that this unit could come and harm you later on or in the winter so you don't need to base your winter builds around my unit still being there that is a that's a, a great example of a specific tactical situation where there's a lot there's a lot going on there i agree that you could choose to retreat your unit or you could choose to disband it and rebuild it and giving the other players information that you are for sure rebuilding it don't be don't be afraid of this can be immensely useful that particular situation i find is good when you're trying to um get somebody who you've been fighting with to change sides you know hey let's stop fighting let's join together someone else is a bigger threat laying down your arms so to speak, uh, can can go a long way in communicating that. Because even if the player isn't paying attention, let's say the other player is like, oh, I'm just going to kick your butt. They're not paying attention to this big threat. They're going to go, why the heck did this guy who I'm fighting lower, lower their defenses? Something else is a term that I learned from, a concept I learned from learning about bridge bidding, whether a, a bid is loud, whether it is loud. Some signals 
are so unambiguous and leave don't leave much room for other players to to, to send any countervailing signal. Uh, and there's a time when you want to say something very loudly, and that can apply in gunboat diplomacy. For example, let's say that I am Italy and Austria is reaching 13 or 14 centers, and I have, maybe I have Spain or Marseille, and I think, you know, England is encroaching way too much on my area in Iberia, and I think I'm going to get shut out of the draw somehow, because I'm not going to, if I go down to just my my three home centers in Tunis, uh, I'll be expendable, I won't be necessary to form a stalemate line. All right, you know what? I want to shout, I want to scream uh, into their ears. Uh, if you dare come one step further, I'm throwing the game to Austria. And the way that I might do that is to send every single one of my pieces towards Iberia, all of them, even if it's not really technically necessary, even if it means Austria is going to be able to conquer centers for me. It's so loud. There's no, there's no other interpretation. And that can be very effective. Maybe we'll cut you out of the draw. No, no way. So I think it is advantageous to send signals early and often to demonstrate that you are capable of doing this, as that may make you an attractive ally to players and may induce them to send messages to you. And if there's a player in the match who's not really understanding what's going on with that, then that gives then you gain some mutual advantage over that player. I also think that if you end up playing for a draw later, there there may be another player who's in a position to decide whether to destroy you or to work with you. Because in gunboat diplomacy, uh, you can't talk to other players about what the stalemate line is. And a player who has been sending and responding to signals implies that they are capable of forming a stalemate line. It implies you know how to play. And those players may decide to work with you when the time comes to form a stalemate line. It's, it's advantageous to, uh, to communicate that. You might not necessarily have to communicate so much immediately to get away with that. Um, but I, that's, that's what I, I personally try to do. I want to show that uh, about myself because uh, even in a high-level gunboat diplomacy game, using signals to get somebody's loyalty as an ally can be really useful in creating a board state from which you could you could actually solo win because they might give you some space to uh, cross the stalemate line. The other the other thing I will say is um, don't lie too much with your signals where you support hold somebody to be their friend and then immediately attack them and stuff like that. Well, maybe we could go to uh, the next topic. How to spectate a match. That's very interesting. That's an interesting question. And uh, I, have, I have observed so many diplomacy games because players ask me for advice. And so I, I follow along with games. I think I have some insight into this. Are we talking about diplomacy in general, like, like press diplomacy? Yeah, I mean, both both press and gunboat, I mean, are fine. Obviously, you can see less in the press game because you you probably aren't privy to all the conversations unless you're somehow the GM of of the of the game you're spectating. Yeah, that that's that's where I was going next. Is that in a gunboat game, you don't know anything more than they do, or anything less. I mean, you don't you don't know anything less than the players because all the, all their information comes from just looking at the game board. So um, I think it's pretty easy to spectate a gunboat diplomacy game for that reason. You can just pop in and figure out what you think the players are saying and stuff. This is really helpful when I'm trying to coach players on how to be better uh, because in a gunboat game, when they're playing a press game and asking for help, the, the player who I'm helping has to summarize 
But in one boat, that's not the case where they say, well, it looks like Russia wants to be my ally. Or I can say, well, look harder at these signals. I don't really think that's true or, or something like that. I help them uh, interpret the signals because it's the same information and it's not very much information. It's just the pieces. I think that observing can be very illuminating, especially a high level game where you can watch players send signals and try to interpret what they're saying in order to go, well, I think England's going to do this based on what based on what I see. So let's find out. In press diplomacy, it's, and maybe it's a little intriguing to spectate because you don't really know what's going on. Where like, okay, Turkey and Russia look like they're fighting, but not that much. Are they fake fighting? And, you know, if you, if you, were, if you were participating in the match, you might be able to, to figure that stuff out or, or just directly ask, you know, hey, Turkey, are you fake fighting or is that real fighting? Uh, <laughs> or something like that. I guess on the conventional wisdom of spectating press games is that it's a lot more speculative where you think, okay, that alliance looks pretty strong. Oh, I was wrong. Or that alliance looks uh, like it's falling apart. Nope, they were just faking it. That sort of stuff. I think a relevant concept here is the idea of reading the board, looking at the pieces on the board and trying to glean as much information as you can from the pieces. It's an action speaks louder than words kind of thing. And gunboat diplomacy, which we've just talked about so much, is great for learning how to do that. Reading the board is the only form of communication. But that still applies in press diplomacy. And you can still read the board. And some players, I think, what they do is they use their press to try to interfere <laughs> with how you might read the board. And so uh, I think that has helped me many times see through the deceptions and manipulations of other players, where I say, look, if I, nothing you say can convince me that you're not hostile because <laughs> these moves are just so hostile. I need you to move differently. I don't, I don't care about what your words are. And so uh, it's spectating a press game of diplomacy can be fascinating because um of how much there is that you don't know and you'll be surprised and delighted when you see what the players do uh the players are a lot more unpredictable than they are in gunboat in my opinion like like in regular diplomacy press diplomacy you'll see players simultaneously backstab each other and crazy stuff like that that's that doesn't happen as often in gunboat the players are a little more slow moving in their strategic trajectories do you have uh, other thoughts on uh, spectating press games? Do you have any any sort of guideline, like like for instance, when you when you read the board, like what what are you what are you looking at? Like first of all, like what what are you trying to sort of pick up from your say first glance? I measure what a player does against the me my metagame expectations. So, for example, if I see a opening move where Austria held with Trieste. That's um, really different. I'm not saying that's a, that's a horrible move or anything. I'm not saying it's, it's, un, it's unplayable. Just uh, I would expect most players to either move to Albania or if they're so afraid of Italy to move Trieste to Venice and do like a hedgehog opening, which, is, which would be the, even less common. But to just hold with Trieste is either, um, it's weird. It's very weird. And so to see something like that, I'd go, okay, this player is either very experienced or very inexperienced because moves not really that common and not considered terribly good. 
So what, what's going on here? What, I want more information. So I would look to the next couple of turns and say, okay, this player is otherwise making reasonable moves. They might be a pretty good player who's just got an idiosyncratic style of play or, or something or, or whatever. And if they continue to make unusual and bad moves, I would think, all right, uh, this player's uh, not very good. That's probably the reason why I'm seeing what I'm seeing. I look to the player's builds a lot i think the i as we were talking about earlier i think the builds communicate the most because at some point the players become incapable of pursuing certain strategies if they're so heavily built in one direction or the other for example if in 1901 germany builds all armies like let's say germany builds two armies or three then that is i at least can say okay this germany is is not attacking england because they would have to have another fleet they wanted to attack england early on i could presume that that was maybe negotiated with england there's a lot i could infer from a from a build like that where germany builds all armies in 1901 when when they could have reasonably built fleets that's probably the easiest thing to understand so i guess then what what you're saying is you're sort of trying to sort of understand like the obvious things on the board like what but sort of deviates from from the norm and and then well depending on on how sort of familiar the board state works then you have an idea about the sorts of plans that you might expect the various powers to have in a in a given situation and whether they follow that or not will give you maybe a sense for for their their strength or experience yeah that's right one of the things that's that's hard about just just spectating is that the players often make really small deals or make small lies that would not you wouldn't necessarily be able to infer from how they move their pieces. For example, if you see Italy move Venice to Tyrolia and Rome to Apulia in 1901, what what was the basis for that? Did did Italy lie his way in there? Did Austria agree to this? Did Germany agree to this? Did they did they discourage Italy from doing so, but let it happen, or or what? You know, because it's unusual for Italy to make such an opening. But what? What? Uh, mm, you know, I, you wouldn't be able to figure it out. I just, I just, you wouldn't. That's one of the limitations of uh, spectating press diplomacy. Is there's some stuff that's that's just quite challenging to interpret. That probably explains why um, after action reports. Are this you know a perennial uh, source of interest in diplomacy players? They want to read and find out what really happened, what what truly happened behind the scenes. Journaling of specific matches, which is something that I I don't know that I necessarily invented it, uh, but I I certainly started doing in depth journals a couple years ago, and now a few other players have done things like that, including the Media Wars game that's being published as we're recording this. Like the only way you could ever really get to the bottom of it or get to the heart of a diplomacy game as a spectator is you ha you would have to have access to the press and not just the press itself because the the press is an artifact of the gameplay. The the press is, an, is, is a kind of move in the game and not necessarily what the player was thinking because maybe I send press to everybody and it's all lies. So just just reading the press wouldn't tell you what what I was thinking. It would have to come uh, from me somehow. I think if you really truly like, ooh, I just want to understand a press diplomacy game, really understand it, you got to depend on after action reports and uh, and these journals that exist out there. 
I mean, the AARs are going to sort of get you closer to the truth. Although, I mean, certainly it's possible for players to sort of embellish to make themselves look better (laughs) after the fact. You're very wise. That is why I personally valued in myself creating contemporaneous journals so that you get as close to what the truth was at that moment. can't use hindsight. I have accused some diplomacy players of uh, lying in their AARs in order to make themselves look better as a player uh, because they want people to think that they don't lie, they don't backstab. So they say like, it wasn't a backstab in the AAR, but I'm like, it was. Why are you, why you got to do that? I have a personal policy of being 100%. I attempt to be 100% truthful in my AARs. I say the match is over. I'm not playing a long game of portraying myself as this player who just never lies, never backstabs. Although uh, maybe that's good. Maybe that <laughs> they're playing that long game could help you win championships. Uh, I don't know, but I don't do it. But there's also the problem of just not necessarily understanding yourself. Uh, just because you played in the match doesn't mean your assessment of what you were thinking four weeks ago in a drawn-out online game is that you've remembered it accurately. I mean, I can't remember what I had for breakfast sometimes, <laughs> uh, let alone what I was thinking on a particular day five weeks ago. So I agree with you. I, I appreciate your bringing that up. You know, it's just somebody is, it's just somebody's afterwards explanation of what was going on. Also, AARs tend to focus on moments that were really important in hindsight. Like now that the match is over, I see that this was a turning point. But at the time, players might not necessarily have been thinking like that. And so the the hindsight bias can really affect how you're thinking about the game. So for example, in uh, my Media Wars video journal, I, when I was very close to getting, I was getting my rear kicked in and I thought I was close to elimination. Uh, you can see, you can see it, you know, uh, here's, here's brother board. Just, just, you know, the verge of despair. <laughs> I don't really know what else I can do. Yeah. But I later on, I later initiated a solo win run and uh, I wasn't, I wasn't I, 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 in an AAR. I could say, see, I'm just a genius, even though I was getting attacked so early on and losing, I never let my my eye off the ball and I was trying to solo with the whole time. That wasn't, that wouldn't have been true. I try not to think like that. Is that the kind of story you're getting at, Paul? Yeah. And I mean, also, I feel like people, people try to make an attempt to sort of downplay their own diplomatic skills. I feel like, uh-huh. like I've noticed, I've noticed this a few times, like whenever you have interviews with winners, they're like, Oh no, that, that's, that's all everybody else. Uh-huh. Like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, they, they just, they, they don't, they don't want, they don't want to be targeted. They can help. Yeah. I mean, definitely, you know, you have, you have to take, you know, understand, you know, what is said and also like maybe what's not said <laughs> or left to the reader. The, oh, no, don't mind me. I'm a simple country diplomacy player. I, I'm not up to anything. Uh, is, is part of the, the shtick. Yep. Okay, I think we're coming to the end of the time. And uh, we're going to play uh, Among Us here on the server, I think. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to subscribe 
and review the podcast on iTunes. To learn more from your board brother and to participate in the dojo, visit brotherboard.com. Thanks to Loyalty Freak Music for the theme music, It Feels Good to Be Alive too.